I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. On the show today, I've got Jeremy King. He's the CEO and founder of Attest. It's a fast-scaling SaaS technology business focused on the market research industry based in London and New York. Prior to Attest, Jeremy spent nine years with McKinsey and Company and leading teams across every industry sector, approximately over 25 different countries. He holds an MBA from Harvard Business School. On the show today, we talk about his love of marine life, and that'll make much more sense in a few minutes. <laughs> but we also talk about some research that we jointly executed to try to dig under the hood, if you will, of how consumers actually think about purpose. We've talked about that on this show quite a bit, and we're going to unveil some interesting nuggets to take away and actually right-size how we should be thinking about purpose in driving business decisions or purchase decisions. We also talk about COVID. We also talk about social media and trust. A lot of different nuggets that we pulled out of this research we executed together. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and you find it very enlightening based on the research that we executed together. And without further ado, here's the interview and conversation with Jeremy King. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. We've got a lot to talk about, and I'm really excited about the research. But before we get into the business side of things, I hear 
your third most favorite thing behind your wife and daughter is the peacock mantis shrimp. What is that about? Well, in my mind, it's the most exciting animal out there. It's the king of the reef, the king of the oceans, the champion of all things animal world, but no one's ever heard about it. We think of lions, tigers, bears, dolphins, killer whales as the coolest animals. But in my view, this peacock mantis shrimp or Ondontodactylus scirillus in Latin is the number one contender in the animal world. And there's four things that make it amazing. One is it's incredibly beautiful. This is like a little shrimp or prawn the size of a candy bar, but it looks like it's been attacked by a kid with a bag full of highlighter sharpies <laughs> going completely crazy on its color scheme. It looks kind of iridescent, like a really cool modified Japanese car. It's amazing to look at and they're really beautiful to behold. They do little backflips underwater when you get near them. Second is they can see everything. This is an invertebrate. It's got the physiology of almost a cockroach. It should have no special skills at all, but yet it has alongside eagles, some of the most advanced eyes in the animal kingdom. So it can see colors like we can. It can also see black and white, which is a really good way to detect movement. It can see an ultraviolet, like a CSI crime scene. It can see an infrared like predator, and it can see, so it basically has night vision. It can see in circular polarized light and plain polarized light, like the glasses that fishermen use to see through the water surface to detect fish. So it can see all these things, even though it basically has almost no brain and no processing power. It has the greatest vision visual detection system like an Apache helicopter. It's nuts. Third, and this gets even more interesting, it has eight times the punching power of Mike Tyson pound for pound in Mike Tyson's prime. It stores up energy in its exoskeleton like how a grasshopper hops around, but then it releases this energy to fire its massive hammers and it can strike objects, pretty much anything, things, massive crabs, it can crack open clams, it can attack fish or predators or prey items many times its size. And it creates cavitation behind, uh, so bubbles in the water in using forces of physics and laws of physics that NASA can barely explain to strike targets with so much power that it can often cause a little flash of light. It's absolutely amazing and it creates this incredible sound, but this incredible impact and the impact is amplified by the cavitation bubble that forms behind the claw itself. So it has this amazing ability to harness the laws of physics and nature in ways that humans can barely understand to punch above its weight. And then the fourth thing is, and this is quite recently discovered, when you're a tiny shrimpy prawn, you're the size of a candy bar, you look cool, you can see everything, and you're punching things with incredible power, why don't doesn't it punch itself to pieces? It can strike thousands of things thousands of times with its tiny claws and smash them to pieces. How does that work? And it has this amazing composite structure in the claws called dactyle clubs, where the surface of these dactyle clubs is so incredibly hard, but supported by this amazingly shock absorbent material that this shrimp just forms naturally. It is better than carbon fiber. It's better than Formula One cars. And you put all these four things together in this amazing animal. This is my favorite animal for different reasons. And it's incredible because no one's ever heard of it. I know. That's amazing. I, I, as you're describing all of the wonderful features of this thing, I'm sitting here going, I feel like Marvel left out a superhero called the Mantis Shrimp. <laughs> there is a Mantis in Guardians of the Galaxy, but I don't think she's particularly inspired by this Mantis Shrimp. Maybe we'll see that in future series, but uh, they are absolutely amazing. There should be entire shows just on the Mantis Shrimp in my view. 
<laughs> I've never heard of it. Thank you for sharing because I've now got to go down the rabbit hole of looking this thing up and understand, like seeing pictures of it and things like that. So I, I, it's pretty fascinating. I don't even know how to transition exactly from the mantis shrimp, but you are the you know, founder and CEO of a test. How did you end up going from this love of mantis shrimp to founding a market research uh, and technology company? I've always had a big love for the natural world, for science. And when I was a little kid, whenever I got the chance to draw anything with crayons, even when I was two or three, I'd always draw fish or shrimp or whales or marine life. So there's something innate in me that loves underwater worlds and nature. And indeed, I studied genetics, ecology. I worked on synthetic biology. I worked on how baby reef fish grew up. This was when I was an undergraduate. And so I studied the natural world, biology, genetics, synthetic biology, combining individual-based modeling using C+, of how baby reef fish move around the world and how that's influenced by sound with all sorts of other things about how ships are designed, how we understand different reefs. And we did a lot of work, some of which was published. And uh, then the person I did it with ended up featuring in Blue Planet. Amazing. Dr. Steve Simpson, amazing person. So I have a, a sort of personal love for science, empiricism, exploring, modeling, using data and stats to make decisions, which is quite fun. I then spent nine years at McKinsey, which is a big strategy consulting firm. I worked in 25 different countries, all sorts of different sectors, always on big problems for big businesses where they needed help to find the answers or needed new ways of thinking about things. And this took me to lots of different places, experiences. And in McKinsey, you're basically a small child with a laptop who's meant to be able to solve big problems. And that's quite a fun situation to be put in again and again and again. And I saw in all of those different places that often what's missing in big companies is a, a better understanding of their target customers. Everyone wishes they knew more about consumers. Everyone wants to be more customer-centric and data-driven, but it's actually quite hard to do. So a test, which started just over six years ago, kind of combined those two loves plus a, a secret third thing. So a personal love for stats, empiricism, using data to make decisions, a business problem that I saw everywhere, this ubiquitous desire to know more about target customers, particularly the B2C companies, but also huge unfulfilled demand because it's actually quite hard to act upon that demand and that desire and actually do something about it. And then third, I looked at this market research is an $80 billion market, larger than hamburgers, larger than video games, secretly a massive market, but where there's just huge amounts of unfulfilled demand. And I thought if you can attack this with a SaaS business model, here's a big white space, here's a big problem to attack that is a personal passion for me and something that I've seen everywhere. And it'd be quite fun to do that. And that's a, a very strange and winding path that took me to the point of creating a SaaS company. And here we are today. I love it. And so tell me and listeners a little bit more about what a test does and, and like how you do what you do. Yeah, the fundamental problem we solve is that understanding your target customers, the customers you don't have yet, the ones that you wish gave you feedback, not your fans, not the ones who are in your CRM, not the ones who respond to your campaigns, not the ones who already buy your product, the customers you don't have yet, the ones that hold your growth, that choose your competitors. Understanding them is incredibly valuable, but it's also incredibly hard to do. We call this at a test. We our mission is to inform every intuition and dissolve any doubt by making consumer research ridiculously easy for anyone to start and continue anytime. And what's interesting is everyone we speak with in B2C companies recognize this problem. They wish they could know more about customers and they wish they could use data for more decisions. They just lack a way to actually do it. So what we do at a test with the SaaS business model is we make it really easy to start, really easy to continue, 
and to take the the difficulty and stigma out of doing research just to give more people the chance to do it more often. Fundamentally, what that means is our product can connect you to over 110 million consumers in about 50 countries around the world, starting in 90 seconds so that you can discover whatever it is you need to know that powers your growth, fill in the gaps about your understanding about consumers, and therefore be right more often, make better decisions, win faster, compete better, enter new countries, launch new products, all based on information from your target market. And that's some of the research that we did with you is about that. Yeah, it is. And I'm so excited to to share the research that we did together because, and thank you for doing it, for first and foremost, I should say that. Well, um, you did it. This is research that you suggested. So that's, that's what makes it even better. Like, when it's stuff that that's interesting to you, that makes it 50 times more powerful. Well, absolutely. And on the show, we've, through a number of different interviews and conversations that we've had with CMOs and thought leaders and, and such, we've been exploring a number of topics, but one purpose keeps coming back up and up. We've talked about how it can be a, a part of your brand distinctiveness or help you motivate internal employees. But I've been wondering, and does it really motivate purchase? Is this like really what people are, are making their purchase decisions on? And there's a lot of research out there and headlines that says, yes, it is. I, I think one of the stats is 68% of people want brands to stand for things or and willing to spend their dollars that way. But I just had this nagging suspicion that consumers, I think, to tell you what you want to hear, and maybe we're not asking the questions in the right sequence or to really understand how are they actually making their decisions, not are they telling us what we want to know. And it seems in part that my suspicion is played out here in some of the research that we have. But can you share what people say was the driving factor in their last brand purchase. On your points, this was a really fascinating topic that you chose to explore here because we often do see this tension between what consumers say about purchase and different data sets say different things. And deep down, the way that you conduct research can create or eliminate bias and truth. And I think what we're seeing here is aspects of confirmation bias in that we often find in data sets things that we're looking for. We also often find in research that consumers are more positive than we expect. So there was a famous study in the UK where a number of consumers were asked, where do you rank in each quartile for your level of driving ability? And lo and behold, most consumers, I think it was about 80% of consumers put themselves in the top half, which is fundamentally not true. So we see this in research all the time. And the key is to be, find ways to de-bias it and to understand it and to test these ideas from multiple angles. And that's something that we try to create to test. On the topic of purpose specifically, purpose right now is the Tesla of marketing and purchase mindset. It's Tesla is incredibly high value, famously higher value than almost all the other automotive companies combined. And everyone loves to talk about Tesla. It's super exciting, super new, and purpose is a cool topic right now. But fundamentally, purpose and Tesla have quite low tangible market shares and influence on actual consumer purchasing. And in terms of actual dollars spent so far, purpose and Tesla aren't doing that well growing quickly, and I think are important topics, but there are more important topics, and we'll get to that in a second. A couple of items really stood out to me in this research that you ran on, on purpose specifically about where purpose does or doesn't matter most. So purpose does seem to matter a lot with people over $100,000 annual income. Senior management, they both skew strongly towards purpose. Perhaps this is illustrating a disconnect in society. People who have the opportunity to care about purpose do care about it much more because they can. 
But as marketers, that's something that we need to be aware of. And that doesn't reflect all consumers, just the ones that have higher purchasing power and the ability to care about purpose when other factors are removed for convenience. Also, purpose in a general trend in, in the result set that you created, it definitely skews more towards male and those who use social media channels more, also the Western US. So social media people are thinking and reading and acting more upon purpose as a factor, more male and more Western. Southerners and Midwesterners simply don't care as much. But over and above all of this, purpose versus other purchase factors that matter Price is six times more important than per person taking a stand. Quality of products is five times more important. Features, feature quality and feature set is two and a half times more important. Availability is 1.75 times more important. Promotion was 1.7 times more important. So all of these fundamental things, price, quality, availability, features, promotions, all of those beat purpose. Purpose is changing. This mixture of influences is changing. But fundamentals beat purpose really easily right now. And that's easy to forget, a bit like Tesla. I know. I feel like we should just take a pause and let that sink in for everyone listening to this show. Because when you think about the impact and the percentage of people that said that their last purchase was made because the brand stood for something was just shy of 8% of the population. And to your point that you just made, you know, price was six times the effect of that. And we know price matters a lot. Like I think intuitively it makes a lot of sense. But the thing that threw me into a tailspin as I was looking at this is just promotion. Like the act of advertising or marketing the product was 1.7 times the effect of purpose. And yet there are so many marketers, I think right now going down the purpose path and not with bad intentions. Like they're trying to make products do better things for society and the world in which we belong. But it does beg the question, like, is it driving sales? <laughs> it may not. You may just be able to refresh your advertising and do better than focusing on purpose. The other thing you mentioned as well that also stood out to me was the reason that purpose is such a big conversation point in the marketing trades may be that we're not the audience that's buying our products and services. And we need to check ourselves before we start building campaigns and and focus strategies around things that may or may not actually apply to the general audience we're trying to serve. And purpose is really important, but just after a whole bunch of other things that are more important. Purpose can be really great as a differentiator, and it can be your primary differentiator, but better differentiators exist. And then more fundamentally, it's easy to forget this sitting in New York or London, but most people don't have the choice to prioritize purpose above price or quality or features or availability. Most people don't have this choice. And it's easy for us to forget that sometimes as marketers. Yeah. And I think we haven't had the, the luxury of cutting this data all the different ways that we could yet. But it, it does seem that if I was a luxury goods manufacturer, as an example, with people that have higher incomes, that may be less price sensitive, of course, if they're buying luxury items, purpose may actually be a, a bigger factor for me, right? There are certain categories of goods uh, and services that I think purpose may play a bigger role in, just partly because these other levers, if you will, of purchase or what drives purchase are depressed to some degree. Uh, do you share that based on what you saw in the data? Do you, do you share that? Or am I, I may be off base too. Yeah, I'd love to test that. I think your hypothesis is right in that 
for the consumers that can care about purpose, they are at the higher end. And it would be a great way to differentiate where purpose ranks higher in the factors about how purchases are made. Indeed, we saw this recently in some research we ran about direct-to-consumer or D2C companies and products. There's a whole wedge of consumers out there who are willing to pay much, much more than the average selling price for at-home monthly subscription boxes, which tends to be in a kind of $20 to $30 range. Boomers are willing to pay well over 50 bucks. There are now rent-the-runway style products that you know can rent you Oscar's red carpet style jewelry for a short period of time if you want it. So these pockets of opportunity exist and we can use research to uncover them. And that idea you put forward is one I'd love to test, actually. I think there's something there. And Maybe we can get some listeners to to reach out to you and want to run that type of work and use and use your tool. So, like you mentioned, there was a group of people that this does matter to, and I'm just curious. You talked a little bit about they skew more male, which completely blew me away. I would have thought the opposite, frankly. I don't know why. I have no evidence to say the opposite. Maybe my house is completely women except for me, and that's how I think about the world. But that blew me away. The Western U.S. skew doesn't – that actually makes a lot of sense because of California and the populations and more progressive groups out there. But curious if anything else stood out to you as well in terms of what groups this matters more for. Yeah, I'd love to get into the why on this. And this is why we do research is to uncover things then to explore more. And and that's why it's important to be able to do this quickly and easily. The things that really stood out for me as well were were the the male and also the earning band and and the different role titles that people hold. And that's what uncovered this insight about opportunity to care about purpose linked to the magnitude of each of the different factors in purchase decisions in that most people have to put price first or have to put quality first and naturally we can believe that beats purpose every time what's interesting here is we start to get into the topics of of subjectivity and projection so subjectivity being what i believe is right or things that are unique to my environment and that we therefore impose those belief on others projection is that ability and that sort of innate way that we all project and say, I believe this, therefore, this is more prevalent in the world. We did an interesting study when I was at business school, where one of our marketing professors ran a very simple piece of research. They asked a two-question survey. Question one, what percentage of people at Harvard Business School own an iPhone? And you could put in the percentage. Then the second question was, do you own an iPhone? I'm going to make up the numbers now. Actual percentage, 40% of people own an iPhone. People who own an iPhone thought it was 70. People who don't own an iPhone thought it was 25. Nobody was right. Nobody has a clue. All of us are projecting constantly and subjectivity really comes into play. So this is why we do research, which is to remove subjectivity and remove projection. So we get to these facts around it's a West thing. It's not a Southern thing. If you want to change purpose of brand, it's you've got a lot of work to do in the South and the Midwest. Western US is where it's going to work best, probably for the reasons you mentioned. Wouldn't it be fun to find out exactly how and where it will work best? And that's how we create opportunity. That's alchemy in marketing. And that's that's where this gets very valuable. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. So another big topic right now in marketing circles and frankly, society at large is is Facebook and Instagram. And not only just those, I don't want to pick on just one or two brands or or applications, but I think this applies to Twitter and TikTok and all the other social platforms. But we did ask of those that used Facebook, whether they felt that they could trust social media companies. 
And I'm curious, you know, to get you to, to tell us the data, like what, what did this tell us about the distrust or trust of social media currently? This was super interesting because we asked the, the last question in your research was, do you feel like you can trust your personal information with Facebook or Instagram? And we saw this very even mix. It wasn't a normal distribution. It wasn't skewed towards trust or don't trust. We had neither agree nor disagree at 25%. We had somewhat agree at 22%. We had somewhat disagree at 22%. We had strongly disagree at 21%. We have strongly agree at 12%. So strongly agree is the lowest, but Beyond that, it's pretty flat. And we looked at all the different drivers of this. Is it men, women, older, younger? Is it people who use or don't use social media? But I was surprised that the level of care was so evenly distributed. Again, my own personal subjectivity means that I will probably be more on the lack of trust. And I have read a lot about this and watched a lot of films. And we talk about data security a lot here at a test. It's something that matters to us. But what I read into this research, and here we're getting into my subjectivity, People do recognize that there's a value exchange. We are giving up data in order to get this wonderful set of social media services, uh, which are free. They contain advertising, but that's why they're free. It's a divisive topic. And it seemed to me that despite media on Facebook and coverage recently, there is, you know, large pockets of people that do trust Facebook and Instagram. And this was quite eye-opening. My personal opinion and our personal opinion loses to market knowledge every time. And that's why I was quite surprised by this result. But that's why we generate data about these things in the first place. It was definitely eye-opening to me as well. I was just actually yesterday teaching a class to an executive ed group. And we had a case about Facebook and, and user-generated content and the moderation that they were going through and that just the, frankly, I had never thought about this until I was reading this case, but the human toll on the people actually reviewing this extreme content, right? Like the, the fact that they come in and they're reviewing image or post after post of seemingly, you know, really bad content, bad things that, that people are posting. There's a human toll to, to the aspect of the people that are just reviewing this stuff as well that I hadn't even considered. But when I discussing the, the concept here, I think we had in the group a mix of people that trusted and didn't trust as well. And I think it mirrored a little bit more our research uh, results as well, which is it's not black and white. Like it's, it's not a growing distrust. At least it doesn't seem to be. It seems to be that, to your point, maybe people are recognizing the value exchange and understand that if it's free, I'm giving something of my own data to them because I don't want to pay. Like it, it just makes sense. I, I also think there's a, a, a growing sense of just like humans are interesting creatures, maybe not as interesting as the uh, peacock mantis shrimp by sh many stretches, but we're interesting creatures in the fact that we can just continue to go on and, and do the things that we do every day. And, and some things matter to us and, and get us riled up. And maybe social media really isn't something that riles us up as much as the press would otherwise tell us. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm playing with the results right now and I'm comparing the, the results on do you feel like you can trust your personal information to Facebook and Instagram with questions on what is your preferred social platform and how has social media influencers persuaded you to purchase a product or service? And what's really interesting when, when we highlight the people who don't trust Facebook and Instagram with their personal information, we see that YouTube ranks much better than Facebook and Instagram for their preferred social platforms. TikTok and Twitter take a big dive. So for some reason, YouTube, even though it's owned by Google, is perceived by people who don't trust Facebook and Instagram 
at all or even slightly as being better than all of the rest combined. And when it comes to purchasing, those people who don't trust Facebook and Instagram, they absolutely hate influencers, which is interesting in itself. When we look at the people who really do trust, the somewhat agree and strongly agree with they can trust Facebook and Instagram, they love influencers and they really love Facebook and they put Instagram ahead of YouTube in the results. And it's just interesting to see when we look at these subsets and pockets within the results and using our platform to run these cross tabs and cross analyses for look to combinations of factors, we can uncover these opportunities. And that's where this gets really powerful and interesting. Yeah, my brain is going in all directions right now, especially with that last last piece that like the connection between the use of social media and the love of influencers or the, the desire to, to be influenced by them, potentially. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We're lucky to have brains because Peacock Mantis Shrimp don't have brains. And uh, because <laughs> most of us never heard of them, they're clearly not very good influencers either. Exactly. Maybe their luck will change after this show <laughs> aired. <laughs> but it's fascinating because you talked about D2C research that you've done before. D2C has historically, they've always, they've used social media and influencers in particular to market their products because it's fast, efficient, easy to measure, et cetera. And it's the jujitsu, if you will, of marketing tactics right now or historically. And it's interesting if you think about like the law of adoption or growth curves, et cetera, crossing the chasm and things like that. Seeing people using a product probably does help aid in adoption of people wanting to use that product. And anyway, it's fascinating. Maybe there is a, a much more strategic use of social media and influencers than we've previously considered. One of the other things that we did dive a little into in this research was COVID. And it's been such a part of our lives over the last two years and still is. And we asked consumers what they thought about brands and were doing in response to the pandemic. And I'd love for you to share a couple nuggets there that you saw. It'd be interesting to talk a bit about Black Friday more recently and, and how COVID responses and sentiments are right now. But Interestingly, what we saw at a test was between end of February 2020 and early April 2020, this huge spike in desire from brands to know more about consumers. Clearly, something is changing. Clearly, patterns are, are on the move. 
clearly there's all sorts of shifts in behavior due to unavailability of channels or products or marketing campaigns, locations of people as we remove move to remote working, things like that. So we at Attest saw this massive spike in interest in using our platform and pure usage of our platform to understand what the hell's going on. And when that's changing every day, it's actually very useful to understand weekly, monthly, daily, what's going on and what you can do about it. And we saw the pace of innovation and the desire to understand consumers in detail amplified by many multiples, which was super fascinating for us. Also, we were glad to be useful at that time. And that's indeed held there. So I think this this need to understand rapidly shifting consumer behaviors, sentiments, moods, purchasing, right now impact of inflation, impact of availability of products in the supply chain, the shift in consumption out of December into November as Black Friday turns into Black Friday week, Black Friday month, Cyber Monday week, Cyber Monday month. And then suddenly we get to December and we missed out on all of the discounts in November and none of the products we want to in stock in December. And that will lead to permanent shifts in consumption as we look into next year. It's Christmas and even between now and then. We at Attest love to be helpful in this. And what we've seen is just this huge change in consumer behavior and a huge desire to understand it. And that's been really interesting for us. Is there anything else that you've seen uh, related to the research you've done on Black Friday and, and shopping? Is there a parallel with what makes people comfortable, maybe going into stores? We ran this a, a couple of weeks back now, but at that time, 41% of people, this is UK and US, wanted to see people wearing masks in stores. They wanted to see that made mandatory in the UK in the last few days that has become mandatory but we ran a whole bunch of research on the US and UK and it was a combination of what's going on with Black Friday supply chains influence of the pandemic and in the US 55% of people said that supply chain issues haven't changed how they'll buy Christmas presents or their holiday period shopping this year including November in Britain 61% of people said that they haven't really changed their habits but 43% of Americans said that they would start their Christmas shopping earlier this year because of perceived supply chain issues. In the UK, that was only 35%. And when we start to look at kind of the, the level of fatigue as we get these Black Friday and Cyber Monday events extending, we ask consumers what they think about that extension. And there's this sense of fatigue. 46% of US shoppers say that these events should only last one to three days. They don't want this sort of scarcity panic of having an entire week where I'm under pressure to look at Amazon and their lightning deals every day, every hour, every moment. We want this just to last one to three days that suit me. And very few people chose that they wanted these events to last over a week. So the drift over the last couple of years where the November events are becoming longer, actually consumers don't really like that. It doesn't suit them. And we'll see what happens with the consumers that missed out and either don't get the products they wanted because of supply chain trauma or because they're back at full price after Cyber Monday and Black Friday are over. But we ran a huge bunch of research, and this is all available on LinkedIn, about these shopping behaviors and what's going on. But it was quite fun to link that together with how consumers want to shop, how they're perceiving festive shopping events, how the world of retailers and the world of marketing is causing those different consumption patterns to evolve and shift, some of it driven by consumer demands, some of it driven by marketing campaigns. But there seem to be disconnects now, which create opportunities. And some people, they get get this really right next year. And all of that is in this data. It's fascinating to hear. I always think from a marketing standpoint, a lot of times these shopping windows, we extend them largely due 
to our own business requirements. We have, actually haven't sold the volume that we need to sell to hit our numbers. And so we'll extend the sale. Last chance now to get this at this price or this discount. And it's fascinating that consumers are just over it, <laughs> for lack of a better word. They're just, okay, make it stop, please. Make it stop. Please don't go any further. If anything, take it back a bit. Please help me out here. Yes, you're killing me here. It makes sense. And at some level, it makes us look a little desperate as business people. It's important to push the boundaries. It's important also to use research to understand when we push them far enough. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I definitely we'll check that research out as well. One of the things that I loved exploring the data set that we worked on together was the dashboard that a test has is fascinating to me because you don't need to be a stats person to play with the data, so to speak, and to look at respondents that answer a question this way, you can easily filter and look at what that impact is on their demographics, on their gender, on the other answers to questions that they asked in other places in the survey. And I've never, to date, never seen something quite as easy to use as your dashboard is. So kudos on building a pretty fascinating product. Thank you. I appreciate that. Deep down, this is why we exist. We use that phrase, inform every intuition, dissolve any doubt, because great marketers and product innovators and B2C company leaders, we have lots of ideas. We just need the ability to test them easily. We have doubt about how bold to be or which decision to make or which path to take. And what we're missing often is information to choose the path or ways to reach a better decision. We often call this decision quality. So that's why we try to make it so easy to play with things, share things, look at what does it look like for men, women, different geographies in the US. You can get down to the level where you're just looking at people in Baltimore who are between 33 and 38 and who are left-handed if you want to. And you can discover what they want. We'd probably recommend that you increase the sample size on those so that you're looking at larger data sets and so you can look at it in, in more detail. But we help you in the product to find these things. And a bit that we're adding right now is to start to show you the most interesting results within it so you can run very simple tests, explore hypotheses, do that with colleagues, do that in your own time. But also we're starting to show you the results as well and what's interesting and what drives the results and which things are related. And that's really cool. That's where this really comes to life when we have great marketers informing their intuitions and dissolving their doubts and making better decisions because target customers hold all the answers. And that's the bit that we make easy. I love it. One of the things we like to do on this show is to switch gears a little bit and, and get to know you, the person, a little bit more. We know you, your love of marine life already, but I love asking this question is my most favorite question to ask. Has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? There's, there's probably three tiny bits for me. I'll keep it brief. So one is the, the film Short Circuit. It's a Disney film, I think from the late 80s, where this evil military robot is struck by lightning and becomes a force for good and roams around. And Johnny Five is constantly searching for input. All he's, His memory has been erased. His evil military personality has been erased. And all he's looking for is input so he can do more stuff. And Johnny Five is a big influence on me. <laughs> I, I roam around the world seeking input, which is quite fun. Maybe that's why a test is so interesting to me. But Johnny Five is probably my biggest influence, maybe along with Maverick from Top Gun. There was a, a moment earlier in my career, which was probably a defining moment, where it was my first time where I was you know, managing another person. I was in working in the US. It was a really important project. This is probably about the 12-month mark when I was at McKinsey. 
And it got to Friday night and we were about to do a big presentation on the Monday. And I discovered in our model, always in McKinsey World, there's a, you know, some combination of different Excel models, there's some slides and there's a you know whole storyline. And that's, you know, how we're looking at data to come to a conclusion and then presenting that conclusion. And then we talk about it. I discovered an error in the model and I was presented Friday night after everyone else has gone home, people have flown back to their hometowns. The person I was working with was helping his sister move to college. And I was like, I've got this choice. Do I ignore this and just hope it's going to be okay? Or do I call every single person back, ruin their weekends and effectively do the right thing? And I I thought about it for a few moments and I was like, I must do the second thing. It's going to be incredibly painful for me. I'm going to be the bad guy, but this is my obligation. And I think that's a choice that since then I've made again and again to try to do the right thing by the client, by the outcome, by kind of the morality of the situation, regardless of the consequence for us as the people involved in it, do always do the right thing. But that was a specific moment where I felt as though there was a kind of a branch in my life where I was going to go down a Darth Vader path or a Luke Skywalker path. <laughs> Yoda and Ben Kenobi spoke to me and we chose the light side of the force at that moment. And then there was a third one, which is the first time I became a, a team leader at McKinsey, where I was wondering, I'd played a lot of sports and I, you know, worked in leadership roles before in charities, things like that. But I never really led a team before. And I just asked someone for their advice and they gave me a look. They were like, a bit late for that, isn't it? (laughs) And then they they just said, trust your instincts. You know what to do. Like when your gut tells you something, trust your instincts, add information, talk to people to remove doubt, what you think is right. And if you trust your instincts, you will also learn much faster because you'll make mistakes faster and you'll understand what your instincts say and when you should or should not follow and therefore you'll be learning. So Thank you, Sam Agarwal, who became a leader of Yum Brands in South Asia and I think is now CEO of Walmart for India. So thank you, Sam Agarwal, for that advice, which has stuck with me every day since. But those were three big influences on me through very different times (laughs) that leads us to this strange place today. What advice would you give your younger self if you're starting this journey all over again? Two simple things. One, I, I wish I'd got into entrepreneurship earlier. I read a a really powerful book called Founders at Work. It's little case studies about how Hotmail was started, really interesting companies and what they did it. And the one takeaway I got was you've got to participate. Everyone, Scott Butterfield at Slack built Slack from a game he built. Uh, People pivot, people start, people move, people follow their market forces and they follow their data and performance to, to places they never imagined. But participation and simply starting is the key. And I wish I'd started earlier. So I would say that. And then second bit is I've often accused of being too nice or too conscientious. So I'd say maybe earlier on, be one notch a bit more pirate. The other ship with your cutlass in your mouth and drop some grenades and uh, (laughs) not multiple notches, just maybe one. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) I like it. Great visual as well. What topic do you think marketers should be learning more about right now or things that you're trying to learn more about yourself? I think this is probably a real kind of ratatouille situation here where it's going to be something very simple, but stats. If I could wave a magic wand, I would give everyone in marketing an understanding of quite simple stats, even really simple things. So when snipers in the military are at a gun range, they're trying to hit the bullseye, the center spot every single time. 
but even Robin Hood can't do that. And the best snipers talk about their grouping, the sort of level of consistency of their ability to hit in and around the same spot, not the same spot every time. And what we're looking for is consistency of accuracy. Even, and if you're shooting at the wrong place, but you've got good consistency, then you've got a calibration of your scope problem. And when we as run marketers run a brand tracker and we expect a, a margin of error of plus minus three, what we shouldn't do is expect that when we one line moves up three percentage points and one line moves down three percentage points and we have a, a six-point relative movement, people panic. But with the basic knowledge of stats, we can understand that those two events are within expected movements, suspected random volatility driven by stats. And in stats, we call this stochasticity. We expect that relative movement and we shouldn't react to it. In fact, we should completely ignore it because it's within expected bounds. Early versions of a test, our product it was full of confidence intervals, statistical significance, stat tables. And the disappointing bit for me is that as we took them away, people thought the product was simpler and they thought it was better when for me as a scientist, it was actually significantly worse. <laughs> but what I'd love to do is sort of wave a magic wand to give everyone a gift of a little bit of stats just so we understand how to read and use data a little bit better. And we're bringing that back into the product now, but in a very simple way that gives everyone that gift. But that's a ratatouille moment. If sometimes we try to make the most complicated dishes, but all we need to do is slice up some vegetables, cook them properly, serve them in a beautiful way, and it takes us back to a completely different place. I agree with you on that front. Uh, so stats is a, is a great tool and something that everyone should know, at least basics of, especially since data is not going away. It's only getting deeper and more. <laughs> Stepping back again on a personal front, are there brands or companies or causes that you follow or you think other people should take notice of? Personally, I do a lot of work in education. So uh, for the last seven years, been involved in an education charity here in the UK called Reach2. We, we help challenged elementary schools all over the UK the ones with the most challenging context or situations or the biggest opportunity to improve their performance, we help them become much better. So far, 60 schools. So um, schools in the UK are on a four-point scale, outstanding, then good, then requires improvement, then inadequate. And my favorite stat is that when we took on these schools, 17% were in the top two categories, good or outstanding. Today, that number is 87%, which means that 16,000 children are in a school which is good or outstanding for the first time because of this work that we do in education. And I personally care about education because this is how we have in many people's lives the first chance to introduce ideas about equality, STEM subjects, economics. And this is where we start to have a, a scalable way to affect positively opportunities for these children by giving them an education in a good or outstanding school when that wouldn't have happened otherwise to introduce the ideas about equality and the ideas about STEM related career paths. This is how we can do this at the maximum possible scale. So I love education because deep down, particularly in the UK, there is absolutely no reason why all schools can't be good or outstanding. The funding is the same for all of them. There are many great teachers have so much passion. We can create these outcomes. It's just an execution issue that means that all schools aren't good or outstanding right now. And this is a big personal passion for me. So I think for anyone who thinks about applying their skills in marketing or business to a social cause, education is a great place to do that, particularly at primary or elementary school level, where this is the first chance that we have to create really positive impacts for large numbers of children and future adults and people very early on in their lives. And that's a big personal cause for me. That's a great 
cause and frankly something that not many people have talked about on the show but i 100% agree with you and man fantastic results you're going from 17% to 87% in the top 2 category categorizations that's amazing congrats to you and the organization last question for you what do you feel is the largest opportunity or threat facing marketers today probably convergence which is where as marketers we become over reliant on a set of tools or techniques or a set of channels and we all start to look you know the same or use the same methods to address the same customers with the same reasons and the same propositions that's where we have unhelpful convergence or over reliance i saw a great image recently where of all of the fancy european fashion brands they used to have really awesome logos saint laurent chanel and now they all basically use the same typeface and it's a bit boring it's probably you know more suitable for global markets but we've lost a lot of the character and the diversity and and differentiation in there but when we have convergence no reliance on a specific set of things that's where we get things like systemic risk we saw in the us financial crisis every derivatives trader was using the same black shoals model to value their derivatives what the black shoals model never included black swan events where outliers occur. If everyone's using the same inputs and outputs to get to the same result, we're all thinking the same way, we're all moving the same way. There is no benefit of having different brands, different marketers using different data to make different decisions. If we're all doing the same thing in the same ways, there's actually a big problem. So I think the biggest threat is when we start seeing brands or consumers or marketers or channels all relying on similar approaches with two similar actions for the same reasons, it's the exact opposite of innovation and resilience and that you know creates unforeseen risks for those brands and marketers that behave that way but also opportunities for others and that's where we get d2c products that spring up out of nowhere to dominate or reframe entire categories that's where we get new brands that can shift overnight that's where we see new opportunities in consumption popping up and there's a whole bunch of cases about where different categories or brands converge to the same point and that hurt them but when we feel that convergence happening, that's where I think threat emerges. And I think that there's a lot of that going on right now. So something to keep an eye on for sure and something to run research on definitely. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.